Quaker.com podcast. My name is Ben Stone. Today is Wednesday, July 18th, 2012, and this is podcast number 171. So uh, before I get into the body of today's podcast, or before I get into my notes, I should say, I need to uh, uh, give, a, give a plug for an event that's uh, coming up that's uh, going to be really important. This is, uh, so, well, okay, so I'll just read the, uh, the intro thing here. Join the Raw Milk Freedom Riders and Lemonade Freedom Day for a picnic in celebration of our freedom of voluntary exchange for the foods of our choice. When? Saturday, August 18th, 2012 at 12 p.m. That's one month from today, folks. Saturday, August 18th, 2012 at 12 p.m. Where? 3rd Street Southwest between Maryland and Jefferson near the Capitol Reflecting Pool, Washington, D.C., Join prominent national activists and food freedom proponents as we gather for a peaceful picnic to celebrate our right to peacefully exchange of, of food. Uh, we guarantee fun, food, fun, food-filled time, and plenty of excitement. Please bring a picnic lunch or something to share. Okay, and now um, I'm not going to be able to be there. I wish I could. Kai has said that she might be able to make it to this because she's going to be uh, in the general D.C. area uh, about a month from now, so she may be able to make it over to this. I know several other people, I'm not going to name any names right now other than Kai, but there's several other people I know that are um, either planning on being there or trying to uh, adjust their schedule so that they can be there. And, uh, and as I said, I'm not going to be able to make it. I would love to go over there for that. This is, um, theoretically speaking, this is going to be a peaceful, uh, not... You know, uh, it's not an attempt to get arrested. It's an attempt to go out and peacefully exchange uh, food and have a picnic together. Now, this shouldn't be a problem, and the government shouldn't interfere. But if the government chooses to do so, there's going to be a lot of cameras there to, uh, to give us a watchful eye as well. And I think it is important that we do things like this. You know, uh, somebody said, I saw in a discussion of this topic, somebody said, well, why do you waste your time on something like that when there's more important things? We have the police state, we have, uh, you know, wars going on, and we have this and that. And, and I know that's a valid point. It really is. But if you think about it, if we're not able to peacefully exchange something as fundamental as milk and lemonade... If we can't exchange that publicly, then what kind of a world are we really living in? And this is, this is what the government is trying to bring to us in the U.S. They are trying to tell us what kind of milk we can own, what kind of milk we can possess, how we can transport that milk, where we can transport that milk to, how much we have to pay for the milk when we buy it, and what kind of milk that we're allowed to pay for. 
this this is this situation's already out of control. Milk is something that is so fundamental to to the life of any mammal. If you really think about it, milk is sort of the essence uh, of our existence. And for government to come in and start to say what can and can't be milk and how milk can and can't be exchanged, this is a fairly danger, da- uh, dangerous uh, situation that we're in here. For, for government to, to exalt itself to a level to where it says that, you know, uh, a kid can't set up a lemonade stand in their yard and make a couple dollars. Really? That's where we're at? Yeah, that is where we're at. That is happening in America on a regular basis now in small towns and in large towns all across the United States. This is happening. Kids are being harassed by local, okay, by local thugs in uniforms and costumes, by local gangsters uh, with, under the guise of government who want kids to file papers and pay hundreds of dollars for permits just to have a lemonade stand in their yard. This is out of control already. If you think it's important to have your gun rights and your Second Amendment and all that kind of nonsense, let me just tell you something. If you're not willing to stand up for the, for the peaceful exchange of milk and lemonade without government permission, if you're not willing to stand up for that, I don't think your gun does you much good. You've already lost. You're already a slave. You, you may be a gun-owning slave, but you're still a slave. And that's the situation we find ourselves in in the United States right now. And here's a way to stand up and bring some attention to it in a peaceful fashion. If you're anywhere near Washington, D.C., and if you can get free on Saturday, August 18th at around noon, get yourself down to the reflecting pool. Get yourself down there to Jefferson and uh, Maryland and be a part of this and make your voice known. Um, that doesn't mean, you know, that you have to go out there and, uh, you know, destroy property or get in any cop's faces or do anything violent. None of those things. Uh, as a matter of fact, violence is absolutely not acceptable in a situation like this. And if people show up and start acting violent, we'll know immediately that those people are not part of us. They are part of the other side trying to provoke something. Now, before I beat this, uh, you know, horse too much, let me just point out something about milk itself. I've done some, a little bit of, uh, uh, I can't remember what the word is called, but there's a, a word for when you study the origin of a word. Uh, and milk is a very un- unusual word. Uh, there's a, there's a cl- whole series of words that come from the same Sanskrit root. Uh, milk, mom, mam, mammary. All these words come from the same origin, and uh, if you trace it back far enough, it's one of the, one of a very small handful of words that has a root that appears not just in one language, but in most, if not all, languages. And it's very similar to uh, when you get back to these, like Sanskrit. When you get back to one of the very original base languages, then you go to one of the other original base languages. And the word milk still appears. Now, it doesn't sound like milk like we say it today. But it's clearly, it's, it's clearly the same word or the same thought. And we're talking about this, this relationship between the mother and child. The, the mother-child relationship and, and the words that are associated with that. And whether that be in the realm of, uh, you know, mom, mama, mother, milk, ma'am, mammary. 
all these words have a have a similar origin in more languages than most people would realize and if you if you try to search this on the internet you're going to get some confusing results because some people will try to say that uh, the you know the original word comes from here or the original word comes from there and the reason that it is confusing is because it's it's older than any of the languages that we uh, that we've traced back and that we know about and i can't necessarily prove that but I sure see a lot of evidence for it as I as I uh, examine this word. It's been a couple of years since I really looked into it, but I was amazed by it when I uh, when I did uh, when I was looking into this. Uh, I was talking about raw milk and the right to exchange raw milk back let's see, two thousand four or two thousand five, that I was saying this stuff on the internet and I was really catching a lot of heat from people. Uh, mostly statists who were convinced that we would all die if we tried to drink raw milk and not really realizing, you know, uh, how easy it is for a farmer to maintain uh, a clean uh, milk process and, and produce and distribute clean, safe milk without it going through the pasteurization process and all this. And most people have no idea that in the, in the 1800s, in the late 1800s, in big cities, both in uh, North America and in Europe, at almost the same time, you know, as the police, as police, as the police state was being born in the big cities, let's let's say it that way, as the police state was being born in the big cities of Europe and North America, uh, an identical growth uh, was happening. As the police, uh, the power of the police increased, and as acceptance of the police increased, crime gangs developed in a parallel mode with the police in in all the major cities in in Europe and North America. And uh, two of the easiest things for the crime gangs to get control of and and grow from were the distribution of milk, which had to be done on a daily basis and was a constant source of revenue for somebody. Uh, so the gangs figured they might as well be the ones to cash in on it as anybody else. And the other was trash removal. As the crime gangs, and specifically through the use of unions once uh, up into the 20th century when uh, many of the uh, avenues for the crime gangs um, had to be adjusted because of things like prohibition and then the end of prohibition. So that, that brought in uh, unions as a method of trying to get control of these things. But, but back to my point, um, there, as the police influence grew in the big cities, so grew the gang influence. So uh, as they grew, not just parallel, but in sync with each other, one depended on the other. Uh, in if you examine the history of pretty much any of the big cities in in North America and, and Europe, you're going to find this symbiotic relationship between the police and the gangs. The gangs would uh, create a problem on the streets. The police would show up, solve the problem, and then the gangs would give part of the money to the police. And and this was a a constant ongoing process. The gangs would help get the the police chief elected the police would then assist the gangs and yeah i mean it, it it's it's well documented it's well known it's not often put out there in the public and most people don't even talk about it and a lot of police will deny this now they either don't know about it because they didn't research their own history or else it's just been lied about but uh but it was going on it's most vivid in places like uh 
um, uh, Los Angeles. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, it actually was less obvious in Los Angeles than some others, but it, it was there. There's evidence of it there. But in uh, New York, in Philadelphia, was particularly bad. Chicago is legendary. Uh, places like New Orleans. Uh, but it was also going on in London and in, in uh, p- uh, Paris and places like this. But as the police grew in influence and as the gangs grew in influence, one of the quick daily money makers was milk. So what would happen would be that if you were a farmer and you had to bring your milk wagon into town and sell milk every day, you could expect to be stopped in certain neighborhoods and you would be forced to, um, you know, to pay part of uh, your profits to these gangs or the police, same thing, to, in order to protect you as you walked around with your milk cart. And one of the things that could happen if you refused to pay your, uh, uh, you know, the, the bribes, that's what they were, the protection money, whether it's to the police or to the gang, if you refuse to pay your protection money, then things could happen like your milk could get dumped out or you could just get delayed. They would just, uh, you know, uh, several of the gang members or the police or whichever, like like there's a difference, they would uh, surround your wagon and delay you until the heat of the day came in and your milk started to curl. And once your milk started to curdle, you know, you have less uh, opportunity to to sell it. You, You need to get out there early in the morning while it's still cool, get the milk distributed, and get back home with your empties. And, and uh, just a few hours delaying that process, uh, you know, would mean a, a loss of a lot of money to the, to the milk uh, sales. So as more and more of these gangs uh, had a greater influence in the milk distribution, there became a problem of less, uh, less quality standards. Because you're you're putting these extra burdens on the on the farmer. In addition to that, um, you know, once the criminal gangs really got in control of the milk production and the milk distribution in the cities, once they, um, you know, once they really had their 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 fingers around this the the business, um, they were a lot less likely to dump out bad milk than the farmer was. The farmer relied on his reputation. And, um, you know, if there were competing milk wagons that would come down the street, you knew which one you could trust and which one had a bad reputation. But once the gangs began getting control and they began to monopolize certain neighborhoods with only, you know, only authorized milk uh, distributors for each neighborhood, then it was a, you had this monopoly developing that was controlled by the police and the gangs. And so you had no choice. You either bought it from the gangs or you didn't buy it. And everybody had to buy milk. So now you have a situation where uh, the farmer is no longer competing, the, the, not necessarily the farmer, because some people just made their living going between the farm and distributing the milk. So I should be saying the milk distributors. The competition factor was taken out, and uh, neighborhoods were divided up by the gangs. And uh, so now you have a monopoly on the milk production. Well, now all of a sudden, if your milk turns bad, you just went ahead and distributed it. You didn't care because they had to buy it from you. And if uh, and rather than pour the milk out and go back and get more milk and wash your stuff up and, and get everything you know clean and everything like this, all those procedures were no longer necessary because the competition element had been removed. And uh, people would buy the milk because they didn't have a choice. And so now you have 
uh, bad milk being distributed on a regular basis in these big cities. And, of course, this gave an excuse for the governments to step in and start regulating the milk. So you see, this is what Harry Brown, uh, this is an example of what Harry Brown, uh, you know, coined the phrase many years ago, where when he said that the government will come in and break your legs, and then it'll hand you a crutch, and then it'll say, see, without the government, you couldn't walk. And that's exactly what the government did with milk. It came in, it interfered with the market, it made a dependency upon the government, and then it got com complete control of the production, the distribution, and the pricing. And now, now milk is uh, an industry that is almost entirely controlled by the government. Prices are fixed, subsidies are given, you know, tax money goes into it and pollutes the whole process. And so the government is literally threatened when a farmer and individual people make private arrangements and distribute and buy and sell and consume milk without the government's uh, permission. It is literally a threat to the government that goes back 150 years. Government control of this product. And really, it goes back to, you know, um, when uh, Eddie Free and I were uh, at Porkfest and I was interviewing Eddie Free, he was wearing a t-shirt with the, uh, uh, the ancient Sumer letters on it having to do with, uh, with freedom. And we were talking about that. And, and the phrase has to do with returning a slave to his mother. This, the phrase literally has the word milk in it because the ability of the slave to return to his mother or his, his mam or his mom literally uh, indicates back to the breast of his mother, back to the life-sustaining milk of his mother. Now, you really can't get more fundamental to freedom than that right there. If you don't have the ability to, to produce, to distribute, to sell, to buy, and to consume milk without the government's interference, no other freedom is real. That's the fundamental first aspect of being free. Milk is that level of base. I'm going to break for a commercial, and when I get back, uh, we're going to get into topics other than milk. Okay, so stick with me. I'll be right back. Anarchy Radio. Folks, have you seen the silver and gold trading cards from Shire Silver? You have to check these out. They're specific weights of real silver or gold laminated inside trading cards, and they're a great way to show the world a better way to save, spend, and share precious metals. And now you can buy them using bitcoins or Federal Reserve notes. Folks, you really need to check this out. Go over to Shire Silver, watch the video on the main page, check out the list of merchants that accept silver and gold trading cards, and you can even learn how you can get paid to help spread the word about Shire Silver trading cards. Okay, thanks for sticking with me through the commercial. I uh, I actually uh, wanted to before I got off spending a uh, spending a whole segment of the of the podcast on milk. I meant to uh, make uh, I meant to say something that I didn't get around to. Bitcoins, you know, if you're not familiar with bitcoins, they're a internet method of exchanging, uh, well, exchanging wealth. That is completely unregulated. It cannot be by the government I'm talking about. It cannot be infiltrated by the government as far as I can see. 
it appears that it can't be taxed. It can't, uh, it can't have inflation. It's a form of money that can't be inflated. It's a form of money that can be privately exchanged without a, a permanent record of that, without a, you know, a verified exchange, without a record. Let's put it that way. Um, if you're not familiar with bitcoins, they're, uh, they're really an interesting, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of potential there for the stuff that I talk about on a regular basis on this podcast. I, uh, I, w working with the admin on badquaker.com, we attempted to set up a method to receive bitcoins last year when we had our fundraising drive to pay for, well, I should back up the story a little bit. I have a lot of new listeners that don't know how badquaker.com is funded. So, uh, let me say this, this is not, um, you know, this is not a uh, beg for money kind of a thing. Um, this is just an explanation of how badquaker.com is funded. We, we began with um, a year and a half, almost two years ago. No, let's see. This is July. Yeah, it is. Almost two years ago, I was approached and, and people by more than one person, and they said, you really need to you know, get get your stuff online by, on, in your name. I had been posting under a variety of different names on the Internet. And, uh, um, you know, uh, friends, people who appreciated what I was saying and what I was doing said, you really need to get on the Internet with your name and with your image and with your words and, and put your message out there uh, you know, by itself and not, not piggyback off of other people's websites. And um, there was a person, a specific person, who was kind enough to make a single donation that was large enough for us to buy our first microphone and uh, MP3 recorder and to pay for the website and the setup of the website. And another person donated time to actually get that website up and running because I certainly didn't have the skill to do that. And between a very small, uh, between this very small group of people, they, they placed me on the, on the internet, uh, you know, in the image and in the format that you see at badquaker.com. And so all the bills were paid by that initial, uh, donation and then we, so we never asked for money. We we just started broadcasting. We started doing what we do here at BadQuaker.com uh, with myself and Kai as being the main voices that were heard. And there were several people have donated in writing. Have have uh, shouldn't use the word donated. Uh, contributed in in writing, including and I really appreciate uh, the 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 help from. Uh, Robert Higgs, with his writing and with his early on, you know, when when we had an audience, when BadQuaker.com had an audience of just a couple hundred people, uh, Robert Higgs came on the show with me and allowed me to interview him. And it was so, I was practically barbaric the way I had to record it. I had a, a telephone, a regular landline telephone on speakerphone, pointed at the microphone. I only had one microphone. So I had the speakerphone pointed at the microphone and me on the other side of the recorder of the microphone uh, talking at the phone and, and the recorder. It was, it was uh, really bad, really bad audio. But 
Robert Higgs was kind enough to help us out on that, and then Robert Higgs has you know written uh, allowed BadQuaker.com to publish one of his articles exclusively, and that was a huge boost to us. So this is how we got on the internet. This is how we started to build a reputation and so forth. But when the, the when the end of the first year started rolling around, we decided, okay, we're gonna we're gonna put out the request. If people want to continue this podcast for another year, then they can make donations. This is, and we even put out how much it costs to be on the air for another year. It was only like a hundred and uh, I think it was less than two hundred dollars. And so we put out the request, and we almost immediately. Oh, and I'm doubling back on my story. And one of the things we attempted to do was to set up a Bitcoin, uh, uh, so that so that people could donate in Bitcoins. But that failed miserably because I couldn't figure out Bitcoins, and the rest of the Bad Quaker staff didn't really uh, have any interest in it, and so it fell away. But in that in that uh, very brief uh, campaign to you know fund us for another year rather than the the $200 that we needed to renew the website we brought in enough money to buy all new microphones a laptop computer um, you know uh, we, we we let's put it this way we really had a good response a, a surprising response so um, here lately now uh, I've figured out enough about bitcoins to be able to at least put the the you know uh, <laughs> the ability on the website to receive bitcoins, and we set up a, a PayPal donate button on the website, and uh, made attempt to keep the the PayPal you know because PayPal has some odd rules about uh, donations, so you have to be careful not to appear as though you're a uh, uh, you know, a tax-deductible organization, and BadQuaker.com is not. We we do not go to the government and ask the government to make us a tax-deductible donation. We're not. We don't have any plans of ever doing that. So we set this all up, and then time goes by. And here's the point of everything that I just got through saying: someone donated bitcoins to BadQuaker.com. Now, you might think, well, that's no big deal or whatever, but it really is. I mean, it's thrilling. Someone donated bitcoins to badquaker.com. Now, it's a, a, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a big deal about how much or whatever, and it's anonymous. I have no idea who did it. Um, but the amount was really cool. I'm, I'm thrilled that that, that amount uh, was donated. I was it really uh, kind of blew me away. I pulled up the calculator real quick to see what it was, uh, what the equivalent was in U.S. dollars, and I was really surprised. I didn't realize the exchange rate, but uh, but I was just thrilling to see a donation to BadQuaker.com in bitcoins, and that may sound goofy, but it was really a thrill. So I put way too much talk into that but but i thought you know with all the new listeners and maybe everybody doesn't know exactly how we're funded and we'll probably start you know we'll probably start asking for money probably around december or january or so when it comes time to renew the uh, the website at this point right now we don't really have any expenses so we're not making any kind of a big deal uh you know i i donate my time every day uh, and and that's just my I, I would be doing this with or without badquaker.com you know I would I may not be recording a podcast but uh, every day 
before we had badquaker.com, every day I would sit down and write, and I would find places on the internet to post my thoughts, and, you know, so I was doing this stuff anyway, uh, and I'd probably be doing it even if there was no badquaker.com now, uh, I would just be doing it in, in writing form and not in uh, recording form, so... The other thing I wanted to mention was a little bit of a disclaimer. During one of the podcasts where Kai was on, I think this was during the Porkfest uh, live recordings, uh, Kai had talked about beer sales in, Pencil- Pen- in Pennsylvania, and she was actually wrong about some of that, and one of the, our listeners has uh, written in and corrected us on that. In Pennsylvania, uh, you actually can buy beer. Uh, now, let me see. Um, I think I think it was you can buy beer in liquor stores. You can't buy beer. You can't buy liquor in in some stores where they sell beer. Or I I can't remember. Boy, I should have had the email with me and opened that up. But either way, Kai was a little confused on the way she had portrayed Pennsylvania's goofy beer laws. So, um, okay. So now I think I've gotten uh, all that taken care of. During the last segment, when I was talking about milk, I also kind of offhandedly mentioned garbage, and I wanted to uh, I wanted to cover that a little bit better as well. You know, during the uh, well for for you know ages, trash collection in cities was a fairly big business, uh, and I don't mean a big business as in, as in a big company took care of it. It was a big business as far as there were lots and lots of individual entrepreneurs that made their living through garbage collection in the big cities. And I'm talking about going all the way back to the days of, you know, Rome or, uh, you know, the days of um, like Nineveh or Babylon or whatever. Uh, going all the way back through antiquity, the collection of trash was done by small entrepreneurs. Uh, these people were not necessarily poor although this certainly wasn't a job that the rich would want to do. But um, essentially, uh, you know, it was, and it was different at different times in history. But uh, coming up into more of the modern age, there were people in the big cities in North America and in Europe uh, coming all the way up into the 19... I'm sorry, into the 1800s. Uh, people, tinkers, uh, um uh, tenors, um, I, can't, I can't remember the other names that they called themselves. There, there's a variety of names that these people were called. But they would come around uh, the streets in, with wagons, and sometimes they would be pulling these wagons themselves, and sometimes they would be successful enough that they'd have, you know, a burrow or a, or a donkey or a small horse or, you know, a pony or a, maybe even, you know, a full-size horse if they were really successful. Maybe a cat, maybe, a, you know, an oxen, but anyway... Um, but they would pull a wagon around, and they would uh, collect your garbage for you. And they would take your garbage back to a central location, back to their their location, and they would sort through it. And anything that was of cloth was recycled. Now we're talking. We're not talking about hippies living in you know San Francisco in 1990. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about how trash was dealt with throughout antiquity. Uh, if you had old stuff that was worn out or you didn't want it anymore or it was just, you know, whatever, you would put it out and the trash man would come by and collect it and he would sort through it. And if there was anything that was made of cloth of any kind, 
it would be recycled. There was all kinds of uses for worn-out clothing and for little scraps of cloth and so forth. Uh, and the same goes with anything made out of metal. Anything that you were discarding because you, because it was no longer useful to you, it was garbage to you, the, the collectors would come around and pick it up. And when, once they would sort it all out, anything that was made of any kind of metal would have been separated and, and recycled and, and put back into reused or recycled in some way, put back into the circulation of, of goods. Because trash had a value, you see? It was a free market in trash. There was a value in every single piece of trash. Now, at times, it's even been such that the, 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 the guys in the wagons that were going around collecting the trash, there was so much competition between them that they would actually pay the residents for the opportunity to be their exclusive trash collector. Now, just think about this for a second. A guy comes through your neighborhood and is willing to pay you to haul away your trash. Why would he do that? Because, again, trash was a commodity. It was like any other commodity. It was valuable. And there were people interested in collecting it, so interested that they would pay you to haul away your garbage. Now, this is the way it was. This is the way it has been throughout the ages. All the way up until an interesting ha thing happened in the 1800s. With the introduction of police in the big cities, you also had the introduction of crime gangs. Remember I was just talking about that? If, you missed, if you're listening on the radio, uh, and we are on the radio on a, in a few locations, including in Springboro, Ohio, we're on the radio. But if, uh, if you're listening on the radio and you just tuned in, you need to get to badquaker.com and get this podcast and listen to the whole thing. Because what I was talking about in the first part of this podcast about milk applies to garbage. There used to be an open market in garbage and in milk. But as the gangs grew in parallel and in symbiotic relationship with the police in the big cities, the gangs and the police took over the garbage removal. So that by about 1900, by the early 1900s, garbage had become a monopoly controlled by both the crime gangs and the cities. It, fascism invaded the garbage market, and monopolies were set up, and at first, the people didn't notice really the difference. They didn't really care. The trash still got taken away. They didn't get paid for it anymore, but somebody's got to haul the trash away. Otherwise, you're just going to build up in front of your house. So people were happy to have the trash taken away, even if they didn't get paid for it anymore. But then things changed more. And then people decided, you know what? Well, not people. The, uh, the fascists that controlled this, this, this relationship between the gangs and the police and the city. And those people decided, you know what? We have power here. All we have to do is refuse to take out the, tr refuse to remove the trash for two or three weeks, and the city is crippled. So all of a sudden, the crime gangs had more power than they had before because of trash, and so now the residents have to start paying to have their trash removed because it's a monopoly. It's a government-sponsored monopoly that the crime gangs own. 
And thus we have the model for today's trash removal in big cities. And it's different in different places. Some places the county or some places the actual city government itself does the, does the trash removal. But in most of the U.S., it's still an entirely fascist system where, where the, either the city or the county government, sometimes the state government, will contract with a, uh, with a garbage um, uh, service provider. And that it, this is a, a, mon, uh, a, a monopoly uh, organization that has monopoly control for geographic area. And you have no choice if you live pretty much anywhere in North America. If you're having your garbage removed, it's either removed by a governmental agency or it's removed through fascism uh, where a government uh, uh, agency of some kind has authorized the monopoly um, uh, a monopoly garbage service, and you have to use their service, and therefore all the prices are fixed. And all and here's the thing about socialism, because fascism is an aspect of socialism. Anytime you have socialism, you destroy the price mechanism in the exchange. That's one of the aspects. Mises and others have shown this. Uh, uh, that that one of the things that socialism does in the economy is it destroys and distorts the price mechanism. So even when you have a little bit of socialism in the form of fascism, you still distort the price mechanism. So all of a sudden, instead of being paid to have some uh, someone haul your garbage away, instead of actually having competition where people wanted your garbage and they were willing to pay you to haul it away, now it's just the opposite. We're paying sometimes crazy fees to have people come to our house and haul our garbage away. And, and it's getting worse. Uh, now they want, it's a different in different cities, but in some cities in North America, they expect you to separate all your trash so that they can take it and more easily uh, recycle it and, and so forth like this. The, all the operations that used to be done by the free market... Uh, are now being done under a monopoly status by the government or by its agents. And the price mechanism is completely distorted. And, um, and the consumer, ultimately, is now paying far more uh, and doing the work themselves that used to be done by the free market. Now, here's another problem. Since the, gar since the price mechanism is distorted, garbage is no longer worth anything. And so there's no incentive in the free market to, uh, to come and collect it and recycle it. All the incentives are false incentives created by the government through one taxation scheme or the other to try to give things a, a false value through, um, you know, through incentives of some kind to try to get you to recycle. But those are all false price mechanisms created by the government through more uh, fascism. And so garbage no longer has a real, in truth, in, in, uh -huh, a, a real commodity value. It no longer has that commodity value because the government has distorted it. And so they actually just take garbage in the U.S. It still happens. They take it out in the ocean and dump it into the ocean. Imagine that. Just dumping the garbage into the ocean. Or they take it and dig a hole in the ground and, and dump it in a hole in the ground. Imagine that. This is a real commodity that has value, and we're just burying it in the ground. Okay, I'm going to break for a commercial again. 
Stick with me. I'll be right back. Anarchy Radio, Springboro. Folks, I want to talk to you about survival gear bags. Survival gear bags is about more than just great gear bags and survival kits. Check out their website by clicking the banner at badquaker.com. Survival Gear Bags has everything from wise food storage products to tactical equipment to camping supplies to clothing and rain gear to hydration and purification systems to books and DVDs. Plus, Survival Gear Bags is known for its service, and it's owned and operated by people who understand and adhere to the zero aggression principle. So get over to Survival Gear Bags and get the stuff you need. What does freedom mean? Tune in to LRN.FM to find out. LRN.FM is the Liberty Radio Network. A collection of live talk radio and podcasts, all coming from a principled pro-liberty perspective. LRN.FM show hosts aren't left, right, or conspiracy kooks. You can tune in 24-7 to LRN.FM via your phone, computer, satellite, and more. Listen free anytime at LRN.FM. That's LRN.FM. Okay, thanks for sticking with me through the commercial. In this segment, I want to kind of see if I can maybe bring these two thoughts together. We had, in the first segment, uh, you know, I was talking about milk. And in the second segment, I was talking, well, I was talking about bitcoins, but I was also talking about garbage. So we have milk and garbage. Hmm. How, how, how possibly can you bring milk and garbage together? Well, all mammals, humans are mammals... And all mammals are designated mammals because of a couple things. We have hair, and we have live birth, and we drink milk. These things make us mammals. We are mammals because we have hair, we have live birth, and, uh, and we drink milk. We produce milk. We produce milk and we drink milk. Um, we produce something else, too. Uh, we, we, you know, we produce waste. Now, of course, when I was talking about garbage earlier, I was talking about, you know, garbage, not the kind of waste we normally think of that humans uh, produce. But that argument could could also be made that because of the, inf- you know, I'm talking about sewage here, because of because of government interference in uh, in sewage, a commodity is being lost. Now, you, you might be scratching your head right now, and you're thinking, all right, Ben, you've taken it just a little too far this time. But no, just think about this for a minute. If you have a city, and all the residents of that city are producing sewage, and that sewage is all going to a central location or multiple locations where it is treated in one form or another, and the water is separated from it, and it is mostly, um, you know, the, a variety of, there's a variety of ways to handle sewage. But essentially the water goes back into the, you know, the water system, into lakes and streams and rivers and so forth, or the ocean. It's dumped into the ocean. And the um, heavier sewage is treated in one form or another. And unfortunately a lot of it either goes to landfill or it goes into mulch. A lot of people don't realize that a lot of commercial mulch uh, has human sewage in it. Um, that's, that's not a pleasant thought, but it's true. And, and how is this, uh, and, you know, how does this relate to the other two things? Well, I was talking about how the government has interfered in the milk market and the government interfered in the garbage market. And fascism, uh, through the use of gangs and police, 
fascism was introduced into the milk market and into the garbage removal market. And, uh, and fascist systems were actually put in place, and this distorts the price. Uh, the government ends up controlling the price. The government ends up controlling the distribution and so forth. So the problem that we're presented with there is that the price, uh, the price mechanism is distorted. Uh, you know, like I said before, this was some of the, the work that Mises did in exploring how uh, socialism can't work because of the, the uh, lack of a price mechanism in any socialist um, model. So because of the, the lack of a price mechanism or the distorted price mechanism, the milk market is, is messed up and the garbage market is messed up. But again, how, how do you relate that to sewage? Well, sewage could be a commodity if, it were, if there were a free... Eh, odd topic, isn't it? If there were a free market in sewage, then you could actually imagine companies offering to handle your sewage for uh, and, and possibly even paying you for it or uh, charging you far less than what your government agency currently charges you. And, and a lot of people don't realize how they pay for sewage removal. In the city that I live in, we're charged, uh, we're charged for water that comes from the city. We're not allowed to drill our own well. We're not allowed to, to make our own water supplies. Fortunately, where I live, we can still catch rainwater. But um, but if you don't have a, a, an account uh, and actively using city water for your house, then they can uh, uh, declare your house abandoned and the city can confiscate it, even if you're living in it. You, you still have to have the city water turned on and you have to have an account going. And uh, the city that I'm in, there's a minimum. They don't talk about this. They don't tell you this when you're, you know, it's not on your bill or whatever. But we've had months where uh, we had uh, where we were gone for the whole month and the water is off I, I check the little meter to see if the little thing is spinning I check that regularly to make sure we don't have a leak and uh, the the little meter is not spinning so we don't have a leak and yet we come back and we've still got a water bill and why is that well because the city has a base amount that they charge they charge you for a base amount whether you use that water or not and part of that bill goes to also pay your sewage bill. You see, that's the way it works in the town that I live in. And then the more water you use, they make the assumption that you're using the sewage to an equal amount that you're using the water. So the more water you use, they double bill you. They bill you for the water to, to bring you the water, and then they bill you to haul the water away as sewage. And if you water your lawn with that water... Well, of course, it didn't go into the sewage system, but they still charge you as though it did. They make the assumption that that water went into the sewage system. So the city I'm in, and, and you know, different cities are different, but the city I'm in bills you for the water that they forcibly sell you, whether you want it or not, because you're going to pay for that water, whether you use it or not, you're going to pay for it. And if you try to have your water shut off, then they'll assume your house is abandoned and they'll confiscate it. So you're forcibly... Uh, you're forcibly buying water from the city, and then you're forcibly paying for the sewage removal by the city. And what do they do with it? Well, they sell it to somebody who makes mulch, and then they sell it to you to put on your yard or, or in your garden or whatever. And you, and you have to be careful. Organic gardeners uh, probably know this better than most people do. When you're buying mulch for your garden, 
It may not matter so much if you're just buying mulch for your flowers, but if you're buying mulch for a vegetable garden, you need to check the source because uh, a good portion of uh, mulch actually has, uh, you know, sewage for, uh, uh, solids from from sewage uh, sources that are put in there. And this, and it's not just the the you know the sickening aspects of this. There's some dangers involved because when you have, you know, in a city. It's not just uh, residents that are using the sewage system. It's businesses, it's restaurants, it's uh, small manufacturing. They're all using the sewage, the sewage system, and they're all putting things down that sewer su- system other than what you normally think of as sewage. And not only that, a lot of people, when they have medications, this is a growing problem, especially in, in North America. When, when they have medications that are expired or that they no longer take or that they no longer want for whatever reason, a very common way of disposing of medications is to flush them down the toilet. And when you do this, you're taking real, uh, you know, sometimes very dangerous drugs, and you're putting them into the sewage system. Now, there's nothing in the sewage system... There's very little in the sewage system to keep those from transferring on through and going out the other end of the sewage system and going into the water supply. So there are actually cases where there are measurable amounts of, over, of, uh, of prescription drugs in lakes and streams due to this process. And not only that, a lot of people don't realize this. When you take a medication, uh, it goes into your body and a good and your body beca- sees that as something foreign and will try to strain it out as quickly as possible so if you know according to your health and your body weight and and your makeup and so forth a, a good portion of medications that you take are immediately strained out by your system and go out you know through your urine um, this is why, uh, let, let's say, uh, an employer that tests his employees for drugs, that's why they can test the, the, uh, the urine and see if the person is taking drugs because a portion of that um, is flushed from the body through the urine. Well, it's the same thing with illicit drugs as it is for you know, actual medications. So if you're taking a particular medication, like, for instance, I take a medication that's commonly given to people for, with Parkinson's disease. I take that medication twice daily in order to control my, my uh, body movements and my muscles and so forth due to my uh, frequent head wounds. So uh, then part of that medication actually goes into the sewer system. My body gets rid of it through the, through the normal urinary processes. It goes into the sewer system. The sewer system treats the water but doesn't remove the medication, and it's off into the water supply. And this happens all over the world, mostly in, you know, in the westernized uh, cities, but, but all over the world this is going on. Would that happen if there was a free market in sewage? What would, what would a free market in sewage look like? Well, you know, sewage produces a lot of off-gases, and there are, I've seen these uh, examples of this where people have taken the sewage from their home, and you have to do this out where you're outside of the reach of a city because governments won't let you do this. But I've seen this, uh, these, these systems work where um, the people capture their own sewage, and they have a special tank set up for it, and a special process, and this process produces enough natural gas 
that it actually provides them, you know, all the he- all the heating gas that they need to cook with in their home, and heating gas to actually heat. I mean, uh, natural gas to actually heat their home, and in some cases, uh, gas to actually produce electricity with to run a generator to produce electricity with. So then, in a free market, sewage would be a commodity. Because in the past, maybe people didn't understand this, and sewage was a problem, especially in the big cities, like in the 17 and 1800s, sewage became a huge problem in places like London and Paris. And, um, and of course, the government's solution was aggression. It was to tax people like crazy, to build a whole system to push that sewage down the stream a little bit farther so that somebody else had to deal with it. That's, that was their solution in the 1800s. But if a free market, if there was no state, and if there was no fist of the state interfering and coming up with solutions that involve you know, aggression and violence and theft and these things, if the market itself were allowed to solve problems, then some bright entrepreneur would look at the sewage issue and say, you know what, that's a commodity. I can do something with that. And these problems would be solved. But we don't have that. There's no incentive for that to take place because by having a socialist order, by having, you see, I've talked about this before, all governments of we, as we know them today are based on socialism, if you really think about it. If you really think about what socialism is, and uh, when you add that to the fact that all governments today are based on aggression, we have aggression and socialism as the as the underlying form of government throughout the world. And and how do I how do I that's a pretty big statement. How do I justify that all the governments of the world are based on socialism? Well, if you actually look at the basis of socialism. Um, that's that's kind of what I mean. It's the same thing. It, it, sure, and not all governments are as socialist as other governments. More government, some governments are more consistent uh, with their socialism than other governments. But all governments are based on these collectivist ideas that people um, can all be treated in a certain way, and that all people have all people have to um, relinquish some of their rights to the collective so that the collective can regulate and control and, and create laws and do all these things. Ultimately, all governments as we know them today in the U.S., I'm sorry, in, as we know them today throughout the world, are all essentially, to one extent or another, socialist. So therefore, all governments of the world distort the market in each the distort the price mechanism in each and every market that they interfere themselves into so then that being the case what would what would the what would a true free market be like in all these different things in milk and trash removal and sewage what what would be the actual free market value for sewage um, because here is a here's a commodity that is packed full of the potential to create electricity, to create heat, to uh, fertilize, to do all kinds of wonderful things can be done with sewage. And yet, instead, it's a burden, and, and we have government throw it away for us because we don't want it, because it has no value. It has the opposite of value. It's, it's a problem you know, for, for people. 
to, if, if it's not removed quickly and efficiently from their homes, you have a serious problem because it has no commodity value because the value has been distorted by the socialist system that we're pinned into. Socialism is, in a sense, whether we're talking about on, a, on the current governmental levels that we see it or in any other form, socialism or, you know, are based on really whoever can be the biggest and toughest and the strongest and be in charge. And oftentimes, this is the, this is the complaint about anarchism. It's like, well, if, if you had anarchy, then just the strongest would rule everything. Well, no, that's actually what we have now. We have the strongest ruling everything right now. The ones with the biggest bombs, the ones with the drones, the ones with the armies. That's who rules right now. The biggest thugs on the block are the ones that rule right now. So what we have now is the very chaos that people tell us. Well, you you just have crazy chaos. If you had anarchy, everything would be chaos. There would just be the 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 strongest would survive, and the strongest would ha- would make everybody else their servants. That's what we have. That chaos you're describing is what we have now. We have a series of warlords from country to country that have fought with each other until they've got the system that they wanted and so that there is now one warlord the united states government based in washington dc that's the most powerful warlord and we have several other warlords like the ones based in uh, china and the ones based in russia and the ones based in india and the ones based in brazil and to a lesser extent a few of them in europe that are struggling to try to maintain their levels of power while this bigger warlord in Washington, D.C. has his way with the world. That's what's going on now. That's the chaos we find. But what's going to come of this? Economically speaking, as I've pointed out before, the current system we have is not sustainable. The, the, the way the state operates now those who are consuming taxes are starting to overwhelm those who are pro- are productive in society. We're starting to get to the point of where in the very near future, governments are going to be consuming more from the productive class than the productive class can produce. And when that happens, the governments will begin to collapse. And as they collapse, they'll get more and more desperate. And they will become more and more chaotic and more and more uh, repressive and uh, more violent and more ugly. And, and their, the obviousness of their evil will become uh, more vivid to the population as a whole. And so as the chaos increases from governments collapsing and governments fighting with each other and governments oppressing their people, as this happens we're going to see order arise out of chaos. And that order is going to be voluntarism. We're going to see people choosing to exchange things peaceably, peaceably without permission. We're going to see more and more of that. We're going to see networks of people organizing outside of the realm of government and exchanging the things that they need. And this begins to put real value back on commodities. And as the governments of the world become more and more chaos, more and more chaotic, out of that chaos, order will develop, and that will be voluntary order, and that will be the system that will replace what we now know as the state. Folks, for more on liberty, 
the zero aggression principle, and property rights, go to badquaker.com. And as always, thank you for listening. Goodbye. Anarchy Radio.